A United Airlines flight on a Vickers Viscount is doing a series of stops down the East Coast when the flight drops off radar. What caused this plane to suddenly plunge from the sky? Are you obsessed with the paranormal? Do you love ghost stories? We have a podcast for you to check out. Ghost Town is a semi-weekly podcast covering and exploring some of the most mysterious and interesting places on Earth. Ghost Town covers places like haunted hotels, abandoned malls, deserted amusement parks, locations of infamous true crimes, weird history, and more. You can find Ghost Town wherever you listen to podcasts or go to ghosttownpod.com. Again, check out Ghost Town on your favorite podcast app now. Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Miranda. I'm Christy. And filling in for Nick, I'm Brendan. And welcome back, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Go to Patreon or you're dumb. Okay, that's a little excessive. And aggressive. But feel free to check out our Patreon, and you get free merch. Once you pay this... the money for the Patreon. Well, yes. That's the what the, the incentive for the merch. <laughs> but it's a cons- I, I guarantee you it's a considerable discount. And... You get discounts on merch for being a patron. So yep. if you're looking at the merch site and you're like, that seems just too expensive. If you're a patron, you get discounts. Yep. There you go. This you week, go. we are starting a mini series of episodes. So Based on the same topic. Yep. We've done this before. You can check back to our Rudder Hardover series. And our Weather series. And our um, Microburst series. There mm-hmm. we go. So, I think that's all the announcements we have for right now. Yep. What are we covering today, Brendan? We are covering United Airlines Flight 297. Thank you to our listener, Joseph, for recommending this. Which, believe it or not, they still run this flight number. Yes, they do. Yeah, but because, if I remember correctly, this is relatively old, so that makes sense. It is very old, because this accident took place on November 23rd, 1962. Yeah, it's old. It's very old. It's on an aircraft called the Vickers Viscount 745D. Registration, November 7430. This is a regularly scheduled passenger flight from Newark, New Jersey to Atlanta, Georgia, with intermediate stops in Washington, D.C., Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina, and Charlotte, North Carolina. As is normal with really old flights. <laughs> yeah. Because they can't fly that far. <laughs> This accident occurred on the leg from Newark to D.C. The captain, also the pilot in command, is Milton Balog. Balog? 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 <laughs> Take whichever one you prefer. <laughs> Age 39. He would be the pilot in command because the first officer was not allowed to. We'll talk about that. Because the first what? officer's name was Robert Lewis, age 32. He's the pilot monitoring because... He was overdue for his first-class medical physical examination. Oh. This meant that his airline transport certificate was no longer valid. So why was he even on the plane? However, he was qualified and licensed to fly as a co-pilot with ah. his commercial pilot license. Oh, okay. Gotcha. That's weird. Thanks for putting that together for me. <laughs> that is weird. That doesn't happen now. Like, I don't think if you're a first officer and you don't have your medical, they won't let you even... Fly. fly right now. Well, it depends. It depends on the the type rating too of the aircraft. Most planes these days you need to have a medical, an updated medical. Well, you have to have an updated medical no matter what. But 
if the plane requires two pilots to fly the plane. Yeah. This could have been a case where you could have a pilot and a quote-unquote co-pilot to fly the aircraft. Right. On board were 13 passengers. Oh, so many. <laughs> and four crew members. Why? I don't know how many are, how many of this plane could hold, but I don't know why they needed two flight attendants or stewardess, as they called them. You gotta, 32. You gotta remember back in those days, the configurations were much different because they could fly, they had them much more stretched out. Yes. Much closer in. You could have lounge chairs. I mean, it could be completely different. So this could be near max capacity for United at the time. I don't know. Or they, She just said it was 32. Well, that's in probably the a original. standard configuration. Yeah. So. yeah. Okay. So we don't know exactly, I guess. For this specific plane. I have the capacity for the Type 810, but not for the 745. 810 had a capacity of 75 passengers. Oh, This okay. plane could not hold that many. <laughs> if you look at the picture of it, it's really small. Anywho, Flight 297 departed Newark at 11.39 a.m. local time. The flight progressed normally, and at 12.14, the flight was cleared to descend from its cruising altitude of 10,000 feet down to 6,000 feet from air traffic control. This is before pressurized planes? I believe this plane was unpressurized, yes. Which means that's why they're flying so low. Yeah. For those of you just tuning in. I I hope you're not just tuning in. I hope you started from the beginning. (laughs) Quote from the Wikipedia page. The Viscount was well received by the public for its cabin conditions, which included pressurization. Hmm. Oh, so maybe it was pressurized? Yeah, it's, it's very much possible. It could just be because it was a short flight. Short flight and they... a turboprop. They, they just didn't fly that high. Yeah, from all of what I'm seeing, it was pressurized. Okay. Good, Good to know. know. Following the clearance ascent, the crew was given the following advisory Be advised, there's been numerous reports of considerable amounts of ducks and geese around this area. The crew acknowledged. And upon reporting reaching 6,000 feet, Flight 297 was handed off to Washington Approach Control. At 12.22 p.m., United Flight 297 was given their approach clearance from Approach Control saying, United 297 radar contact, turn left heading 200, radar vector omni approach course via Alexandria intersection, landing runway 36, wind northwest 10, altimeter 3037. The crew then acknowledged their approach clearance and altimeter setting. An, ad- an additional vector of a heading to 180 was given to flight at 12.23 p.m. However, this was not acknowledged by the crew. Uh-oh. At 12.24, flight 297 disappeared from radar. Uh-oh. The airplane crashed into a wooded area six miles west-southwest of Ellicott City near Baltimore, Maryland. A post-crash fire ensued, and all 17 souls on board perished. Wow. So this investigation was performed by the Civil Aeronautics Board, or the CAB. The CAB. (laughs) Who were the predecessors to today's NTSB. The flight data recorder was found and taken to CAB headquarters in D.C. The CAB headquarters. Yeah, are you going to say cab every time she says I sure am going to say cab. (laughs) That's the last time I say it, so good on me. (laughs) Their headquarters is actually pretty close since they are based in D.C., so Uh, probably just put it in a car and sent it on its way. 
Analysis of the wreckage showed that it crashed inverted and 46 degrees from the horizontal. They don't go into too much detail on how exactly they determined that, which kind of irks me, but whatever. Yeah, inverted meaning upside down? Yes. Yep. How, yeah, how did they, what? I don't know. Okay. For reference, this entire report, including appendices, was 17 pages. Two of those were pictures. So... (laughs) (laughs) So bear with me. Most of our reports are over 100 pages. What was more of note in the wreckage were biological remains, and I don't mean the passengers or crew. On both horizontal stabilizers, which are the horizontal kind of miniature wings on the tail, were the remains of birds. Um, On the right stabilizer, 22 inches out from the fuselage, was a glancing blow from a bird, no serious damage to the surface. What does that mean, glancing blow? It hit it and it ricocheted off. It was superficial. It didn't cause a whole lot of damage. Oh, okay. Probably just dented. However, the left horizontal stabilizer was in worse shape. More than four feet out from the fuselage was a penetration to the leading edge with avian remains in the damage, meaning it was not caused by impact with the ground. No, it was probably caused by the impact from the bird. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Ooh, okay. The bird continued through the stabilizer, (laughs) fracturing the spar web and separating it from the top and bottom of the surfaces, and then the bird continued aft and dented the lower leading edge of the elevator, which is the control surface on the horizontal stabilizer that moves up and down to control pitch, though it only dented it. This showed a path for the bird relative to the aircraft being slightly downward, which makes sense as the plane was climbing in that direction to avoid it. Flat out went through the stabilizer? Yes. I didn't even realize that could happen. I don't think they did either. Through. The left horizontal stabilizer and elevator, quote unquote, failed along the path of travel of the bird, meaning it separated entirely. I had to kind of read more into the report because at first they just said failed. I'm like, that can mean a lot of things. So it it, it It separated. separated. The right horizontal stabilizer also separated almost five feet from the fuselage. And then they said that the weakened inboard portion of the right horizontal stabilizer also failed. Though I'm not entirely sure what they mean by that. I think they also mean separated. Okay. Investigators wondered if the birds had hit the wings as well, but were unable to discern any further bird strikes due to the post-impact ground fire. A partial bird carcass, by which they explain means, quote, a large piece of skin covered with white feathers, end quote. Ew. (laughs) I hate that description so much. I do too. Ew. It's probably what they saw, so... That was about 19 inches by 9 inches, was found with the separated left horizontal stabilizer section. This carcass, as well as bits and pieces found embedded in the wreckage, were taken to the Fish and Wildlife Service of the U.S. Department of the Interior, who identified the bird as an Olor Colombianus, more commonly known as the Whistling Swan. The average weight is 14 pounds for males and 11.5 pounds for females, though they can reach weights of up to 18 pounds. That's a chunky bird. Oh, look how nice they look. Perfect for being struck by by an an airplane. airplane. (laughs) And I wondered what the sound was since it's called the whistling swan, and this is what it sounds like. So it sounds like keys. It there's no whistling whatsoever. No. (laughs) There were several witnesses, either to the crash itself or in the area surrounding, whose statements proved to be helpful in the investigation. 
According to their statements, the accident plane was at a very low altitude and turning left when it suddenly rolled, inverted, and disappeared into the trees nearly vertically. Oh, so they found that out from a witness? And also from the wreckage. The whole inversion thing is hard for me to realize how they figured that out from wreckage. I'll get into it in a second. Okay. Many witnesses reported an unusual noise, though investigators never determined what that would be. Maybe the plane hitting the birds? I'm not sure. It sounded like it was after they started rolling. Oh. Could be the plane just breaking apart. Falling out of the air, yeah. Several pilots in the area reported a flock of 50 very large white birds flying in formation at about 5,500 feet. This was backed up by the radar log at Washington National, which showed radar echoes of what was described in the log as quote-unquote birds or angels from 8.15 a.m. to 5.05 p.m. There was a footnote in the report that noted angels to mean, quote, contacts of unknown origin not associated with precipitation thought to be birds or insects, end quote. Makes sense. I just thought the terminology of angels was a weird thing to call it, but okay. At the time of the crash, the flock was scattered over a 30-mile radius from the station, and the crash was 23 miles away from the radar station, and the flock was moving north-northeast at 30 to 40 knots, which is kind of insane for a bird. Yeah. The flight data recorder showed that in the span of a minute, the plane dropped from 6,000 feet to the ground, with headings and airspeed varying wildly during that time. The vertical acceleration, the only other recorded parameter, showed a change in reading from the kind of high but somewhat normal 1.6 Gs to negative 3 Gs, indicative of a falling. Yes. Investigators surmised that the plane had struck two swans, one on the left and one on the right, with the left one being of far more damage and the right being more superficial. Once the left horizontal stabilizer and elevator separated, the FDR recorded a violent and instantaneous nose-down pitch, which then caused the right horizontal stabilizer and elevator to separate in two pieces and make the aircraft completely uncontrollable. Hence the inversion. Yeah, well, that makes sense. The stabilizer is, like, really important. It keeps you, um... Stable. (laughs) Uh, You guys should have known that was coming. (laughs) So, I guess... We'll take our break here and continue later. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome back from that lovely commercial sponsored by... Fill in the blank. All right. <laughs> Let's talk about the bird strike problem, according to the report. That's the bird strike problem. That's actually what the section is entitled. Discussion of the bird strike problem, part one. Part one of how many? Not one. Oh. <laughs> Alright, so before this accident, bird strikes have always been a problem, but also before this accident, it was mostly just more of a slight nuisance than a actual... Catastrophic failure? Right, problem. This is because the speed of earlier aircraft was slow enough that damage was usually minor. Also, that the closing rate between the aircraft and the bird uh, was also pretty slow. That allowed more time to evade the yep. bird. Which is... I can weave. I think is kind of why the investigators said it made sense that 
the flight of the bird was in a downward motion as they were probably trying to climb mm. to avoid and um, didn't. Yeah. However, aircraft did have one point of vulnerability. Any guesses? I'm going to say the stabilizer. No. Since it hit the stabilizer. Propellers? Nope. What? Come on, it's not fun if I just give you the answer. <laughs> um, the weak metal used for the fuselage. Nope. No way to tell how close the birds are. That's not a vulnerability of the aircraft. Well, I don't know. <laughs> Come on, what's the one spot in front of the aircraft? Super important for flying. There's a lot of things. The windscreen? Boom. Oh, okay. The windshield. <laughs> there was a like we say <laughs> That is the most vulnerable point of an aircraft, especially at that time. They didn't have that super thick glass. That actually makes a lot of sense. Mm. You hit a bird with that, it's gone. It's shattered. There was a study conducted by the Civil Aeronautics Administration from 1942 to 1946 collecting bird strike data. They found that 28% of bird strikes were to the windshield. Yeesh. 31% to the fuselage. And... 9% 9% to the power plant, the engines. Engines, yeah. 23 to the wings, and another 4% to other areas, like the landing gear or the empennage. I'm actually intrigued that it's so low relatively for the engines. I mean, they're it's a relatively small area. I mean, probably as jets got bigger and engines got bigger, that might have changed. That's true. But in 1940s, I mean, yeah. you have to think that the engines probably were propellers and... You know, you and, could you see know, them. I'm sure it wasn't the most scientific study because you know, airplanes have, you know, could have they could have been looking at single engine aircraft to something like this aircraft, which had four engines. Yeah. Which drastically it's determines different. the probability of hitting an engine or not. So yeah. that's true. And if there's a glider involved, then there's no engine to be hit. Next part, I just said read final paragraph. So I'm gonna <laughs> read final paragraph. Okay. In consideration of the fact that serious damage to such items as antennas, dents, and even holes to wings, cowlings, and fuselage do not in themselves render an aircraft incapable of further flight, the industry was justifiably satisfied that at the time that further bird-proofing requirements were unnecessary. That's intriguing. And when, when was this? This is at the time of the report. It was 1940s, so late 1940s. They were like, "Nah, it's fine. Just try not to hit them." That seems unsustainable. Yeah. This is not to imply that progress ceased. For certainty, the industry has constantly strived for and achieved product improvement and increased safety levels. I mean, they're not wrong. I guess. (laughs) But following the windshield program, there was no industry-wide concerted effort towards further bird-proofing, nor was there any indication of of its necessity. Well, I mean, if you're talking about 1940s single-engine aircraft, no, probably not. But they probably should have done a little bit something different when airplanes started to change. I guess not. I guess it took well, <laughs> further incidents, which is the reason for this uh, series. Yes. So if you haven't figured it out yet, we're doing Bird Strait series. Yes. Now, before we do move on, 
I should say, bird strikes are actually very common still today. Oh, yes. yeah. But they rarely cause any problems, especially with the more reliable turbine engine. Yeah. Or not turbine engine, but the regular engine. En- engines that can chop up birds better? Right. <laughs> Most of the time today, if an engine, if a bird goes into an engine, you might most likely just get a compressor stall, which we covered about in our last episode. Yes. And they have procedures now to recover from a compressor stall. Yep. All I have to do is come back, land, and then probably get in a new airplane. Yep. That yep. one checked out. Um, it's almost a, there's a, basically, a, I think I saw a thing on it on, I believe it's AvWeb on YouTube, but they happen on an almost daily basis. Well, it's kind of in the United States. Yeah, well, it's kind of difficult to not hit, hit birds. birds. There are countermeasures in place now that actually airports put into effect that are kind of interesting to mitigate the risk of bird strikes, particularly on takeoff and landing. Mm-hmm. So, a lot of smaller airports, for example, will fire blanks from a gun. Yeah. Yeah. Scare um, them off. And then some bigger airports actually have a lot more. Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Drastic measures? Yeah. For example, Denver International Airport has a falcon. A that... falcon like an airplane or a falcon like an actual falcon? A falcon, like... falcon, bird falcon. The bird. Oh. They have falconeers who launch this falcon to go hunt birds. On well, Yeah, get them away from the airplanes and the runways and taxiways. Which is pretty wow. sweet. I, I've seen one of them perched up on a sign before at really? DIA. Yeah. I was like, oh, I know what that bird's for. There must be some other birds around. <laughs> I wonder what kind they use. What kind of falcon? I have no idea. I know that peregrine falcons, which I think are the fastest bird ever, are actually very common in Cherry Creek State Park. I've seen them before. I'm I'm pretty sure they they'd be really well trained because otherwise they just become ground poultry themselves. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> There's been um, a few times when I've been flying. The airport I fly in out of has two runways, the east to west runway and the north and south runway. We rarely use the north and south runway because it's so far away from where we park the airplanes. Mm -hmm. But the winds were blowing from the south, so I wanted to take off into the wind. So I went all the way to the north-south runway, and I started my takeoff roll. And probably like 40 birds just all of a sudden left the runway as I was charging <laughs> I'm like oh crap this is nice at least they all moved yeah <laughs> small birds but still that was a little interesting Yikes. often pilots just kind of have to rely on reports from other pilots and air traffic control will call out like we were listening to the air traffic control recording from the mid-air collision that happened at centennial yeah and right after, like, everyone's like, oh, the chute went off, blah, blah, blah. And then air traffic control all of a sudden just says, there's a hawk between the parallels. Because someone hadn't mentioned it. Yeah. So they had to report it. Yeah, just so that people know. Please yeah. don't hit the hawk. No, nope. <laughs> Don't want another accident to happen. Correct. Okay. Well, reverting back to our previous conversation, I am now going to read the probable cause. The board determines that the probable cause of this accident was a loss of control following separation of the left horizontal stabilizer, which had been weakened by a collision with a whistling swan. <laughs> Sounds legit. I mean, that's what happened. Thank you. You're welcome. I think it's interesting that they don't go into further detail about how it subsequently caused the loss of the right horizontal stabilizer as well, but... Well, 
they said that the damage to the right horizontal stabilizer was superficial. Well, so after the left horizontal stabilizer failed, that caught the now overstress on the right horizontal stabilizer caused it to separate as well. Well, in yes, two pieces. but it, it wasn't caused by the bird. They, no. They also don't know if there was more damage from the birds. Well, because of the post-crash fire. Right. Yeah, and they only had so much technology at that time to... Somewhere in this report, it says something like, any resemblance of a other another bird was destroyed due to the post-crash fire. So I don't know if it was... Another. More than one... More, one, more than two. the two birds that they know hit the aircraft. Yeah. Scary shit. Yeah, well, and it was a, a flock of 50. So... Found to hit one of them. Yep. Turns out, bound to hit two of them. Turns out. Potentially more. <laughs> That's kind of scary. Right now, in cruise flight, we airplanes go so high that birds that can't matter. go up that high. There are a few birds that can fly that high. What? There, there's a few that can at fly like at... like 30,000 feet? Yeah. Holy crap. Like what? Birds that fly really high. <laughs> Is that what you Googled? Um, I Googled something similar. So the Rupel's vulture has a maximum height of 37,100 feet. Can you imagine hitting a vulture that high? That's insane. You probably would be able to see it, though. Vultures are big birds. The common crane can fly up to 33,000 feet. This height was recorded above the Himalayas. This great height allows them to avoid eagles in mountain passes. They probably use the mountain lift to... Yeah, they don't high. just they, they don't, don't just, just go from sea level. <laughs> <laughs> they don't they don't go straight up to thirty thousand feet. But you know this because these birds are big birds. Yeah, big these birds. are because they yes cranes and vultures big birds. Well, and just going all the way down, bar-headed goose, whooper swan, alpine cho. That one's on Mount Everest. Bearded vulture, Andean condor, like these are ginormous birds. Huge birds. We're not talking like little starlings and stuff flying that high because the, they need the oxygen more. Apparently yeah. mallards can fly at 21,000 feet. Wow. Crap. Storks can fly to 16,000 feet while migrating. So, I, never, I mean, it's it's possible to hit a ginormous bird at up at altitude. Never heard it happen, so... No, I'm sure it's very rare. Well, because you'd have to find, like, the one or two birds that are flying at the exact same height as you, going the exact same direction, or going the opposite direction. It sounds like it's definitely more of a risk over the Himalayas. Yeah, turns out. The Himalayas are just a risk to aviation in general. (laughs) We'll cover a couple more incidents in the Himalayas. Nepal is a fun place to fly to, apparently. I don't know if fun is the right word. Dangerous? Lukla would be a lot more fun. Yes. At Lukla, you have very tight weather restrictions. Yeah. Like, extremely tight. They should, if they were like any clouds in the area, they called off immediately. Because there's no instrument approach. They can't. Oh, there's no, like, ILS or anything? You have to fly it. You have to hand fly it. Visually. Jesus. Yeah. That's a pain. Okay, we'll probably continue this conversation more in the post-episode, Yes, given that it's not super relevant, other than bird strikes can happen at cruising altitude over the Himalayas. Yes. Good to know. Is that all? No recommendations? There's no recommendations. All right. That was United Air... Airlines Flight 297. (laughs) I'll walk you through it each time. (laughs) 
Every time, guys. You you don't hear it most of the time, but I forget 99% of the time. So, sorry for the short episode, but it is the introduction to a series, so stay tuned. We got more for you, and you guys can probably guess what the last installment of the series is. If you can't guess it, you're in for a treat. You can also go back and check out any one of the other 50-ish episodes. I can't remember what you guys were. This is any episode 85? 80-ish oh, wow. episodes? <laughs> sorry, I got the... Uh, Five and the eight backwards, mm. which is what I usually do. <laughs> Happens. Also, if you want more content, you can check out the Patreon. There's Miranda Sodes up there. Uh, 17 of them now. Yes. You will want to be on Patreon. And if you don't, consider your life choices. <laughs> consider your life choices. And then reconsider them. <laughs> and subscribe to Patreon. <laughs> Or at least, please just check Look, it out. Here's the deal. You give us oh money, boy. the better this gets, right? I mean, you're not wrong. So Our next goal, for the record, once we reach $1,000 a month from Patreon, we are going to do an equipment upgrade. So we'll get better mics so you guys can have better audio quality on your end. I think we need a sound effects board. Make sure to give us your summer vacation stories for June. For the listener episode. Does it have to be about travel? No. Any so I if have you lots have a summer vacation. If you have there. a funny like vacation story that happened, if you had to travel there, like that's enough for I us. I mean, I mean, it'd be preferred if it was aviation related, but we won't hold it against you if it's not. I might hold it against you personally. Could be about bugs. Bugs. What? Bugs come out in the summer. <laughs> Please ignore him. So we're talking about bird strikes. Has there ever been like a consequential bug strike? Like, flying to a swarm of bees, can't see out the windshield. I doubt it, but I've been struck by a bird. You have? On the beach, when you're trying to feed them. <laughs> Why are you feeding seagulls? Because it's fun. <laughs> oh my god. Until they try thought, to attack you. I thought you were going to say, like, while you were flying, and I was going to be like, holy uh, crap! No, he was say this feeding early? a seagull, and it ran after him. That's what happens. <laughs> Alright, goodbye everyone. <laughs> Thanks. Have a a safe and healthy week, and we'll catch all of you next week. Keep Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Brendan and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.